0: watching singularity 1 on 1 and my name is nicola aka socrates today my guest on the show is george dyson george dyson is a technology historian well known for his books such as darwin among the machines and most recently turing's cathedral welcome george it's very nice Thank to you. have you on the show
1: yes good to be here
0: Fantastic. Just before we jump right into the meat of the interview, I want to uh, invite our viewers and listeners to support this show in one of two ways. Number one is, guys, uh, feel free to go on iTunes and write a very brief review for the show, which would help me spread the word and let more people enjoy the interviews that I do with amazing people such as George Dyson. And number two, of course, is you can always go to the donations page and just um, send any money that uh, you deem appropriate, for which I'm very thankful. Okay, moving on with the interview. Uh, George, let me start here with the first question, which is, can you tell us perhaps how and why you got interested in technology and in history, and which one was your original love?
1: Uh, Well, the original love was uh, technology, not not history. And I think that's just something that is true of most children. As a, as a child growing up in New Jersey, I was interested in animals and uh, machines, sort of very clear.
0: Very, very interesting. And perhaps... Um, th- Some of our uh, viewers and listeners may not be aware of the sort of incredible opportunity that you had uh, growing up in the family that you did. Uh, Your father was uh, Freeman Dyson. Your mother was another one of the Institute of Advanced Studies uh, scientists. Um, Your sister Esther Dyson is another computer luminary. So perhaps you could share uh, with us a little bit about that kind of unique experience
1: Yes, well, it was not that interesting for a child like me I mean, to, to be growing up with uh, theoretical. You know, <laughs> my, my mother was a logician. My father was a mathematical physicist who, who really only uh, worked on paper, except for, for a few exceptions. But at this place where they worked, there happened to be a very small project in, a, in an outbuilding behind the main buildings where a computer was being built, and that fascinated me because it was real hardware and real engineers, and they left a lot of scrap uh, mechanical stuff lying around that as a as a child I could, at that time you could actually physically, you know, remove vacuum tubes and take things apart with wrenches and screwdrivers, hard to do that now.
0: And, and, and so, how did you end up connecting those two things, your personal experience growing up and... Taking apart the scrap from the sort of Institute of Advanced Studies or the first computers, ENIAC and so on. I think was it called ENIAC at the time? It was
1: called, it was called MANIAC. MANIAC. ENIAC. Oh, ENIAC e- right. e- e- was the archetypal machine, mm-hmm. and the the follower of ENIAC was named MANIAC, Mathematical and Numerical Integrator and Computer.
0: And so how did you connect that kind of personal experience with your consequent you know, love of technology and, and then eventually moved into sort of the history of it?
1: Yes, well, it's not necessarily only a love of technology. It's also, in, in some sense, a fear of technology. But <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, if you're living in the uh, jungle, you, you know, you want to understand the sort of larger animals that, that might prey on you. So, so I, I was always had a mixed fascination with, with computers. But at that time, at the time of my childhood, there was one computer, there was this one machine, and people came from all over the world to um, run their problems on it, sort of put in questions and wait hours or minutes or days, sometimes months to, to get the answer. And so, very quickly, you know, by the time I became a teenager, the computers were everywhere, mm-hmm. and that fascinated me. How were how were they uh, sort of reproducing so quickly?
0: Mm-hmm. And and how it's, is how is it, and why is it that you decided to go back, sort of, and uh, look into the history of how the whole uh, thing happened, and look at the people involved in it?
1: Well, I think the the people who really, you know, in your class case of the people who really did the work were the engineers and they received very little credit and, and so in a way I try, I, you know, my job is sort of to try and tell the full story more who, who did what with their own hands and, and not necessarily who, who got the credit later.
0: So was the motivation sort of setting the historical record straight in a way and giving credit to those people who were under uh, appreciated for their contribution?
1: Yeah, in some sense, and then also just simply curiosity. As, as a child, I was really curious about what was going on, and, and nobody could really explain it to me. So, you know, before it was too late, I wanted to find out while well, there were still a few people alive who had been there.
0: Yeah, I, I cannot imagine a, a, a better environment, perhaps from from the outsider's point of view, of a curious child. Uh, for a curious child, other than growing up. Around and, and within sort of the Institute for Advanced Studies uh, at Princeton, and one of the other interesting biographical notes that I came across here with you is that um, Einstein's secretary was your babysitter. Was that the case?
1: Yes. Who's another person who, who doesn't get enough credit? I mean, how how you know Einstein didn't have uh, Google, or, you know, or a personal computer. So yet he he had to answer. Dozens of people every day had to keep things. So you know, Helen Dukas was really was his computer, his search engine. Who you know kept track of everything he ever knew, every scrap of letter he had ever written. She sort of still had in his in her mind. Could, could find it for you. And unfortunately, she had no children of her own. So she she sort of uh, more was really babysitter of my younger sisters. And, and I just sort of made trouble for her by, by, you know, being this young kid asking questions all the time.
0: And and, and uh, I imagine both her and, and all those people um, around you as you were growing up, they, do you uh, find yourself, you know, on, at certain moments in your life that you suddenly realize how deep of an impact they had on on your character and, and on what you ended up doing
1: yes, of course you don't realize that later as children just take for granted the environment in which they grow up yeah. but the, the thing to remember is that this institute has nothing no real connection to Princeton University it's absolutely independent mm-hmm. and People come there to work in all fields. We've, we remember the, you know, the Einsteins and the Oppenheimers, the mathematicians and the physicists. And, and we've also forgotten, pay less attention to the art historians, the linguists, or sort of any any field of study. Uh, if you have an interesting problem you want to work on, you, you apply and there's various schools and you can go there. You either go for one year or you go for your entire life and, and, mm-hmm. and work on whatever interests you, and again, I sort of took that for granted—that if you are interested in something, you could, you could work on it.
0: Yeah, actually, one of my professors at the, the University of Toronto, uh, Nancy yeah. Kokas, she she's a political scientist, and she went for a year to visit at uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, which was yes. an amazing experience.
1: And, and it's a very important year for, for for many people. Much much more. So the impact has been much larger. On, on the large numbers of young people who go for one year than the few sort of anointed uh, you know, people who, who get to go for life.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, George, I would like to, to proceed uh, our discussion by focusing on your books, but uh, before that, uh, just as a curiosity, would you mind telling us a little more about your interest in boat building perhaps and how is that connected with technology or is it?
1: It's very connected. I mean, boats are, are one of the earliest and most advanced technologies, and many of the sciences that we, again, take for granted—astronomy and navigation, and so on—they you know they developed were developed by seafarers. And so, uh, and I can tie that sort of back to one of these days that I was making life miserable for Helen Dukas, the babysitter. Uh, she said, "Why don't you read a book?" you know be quiet and i said there's no no books to read i've read all the books i meant the children's books and she said why don't you read a grown-up book and I said, i'm not interested and she she went up to the shelf and pulled down a copy of pontiki so which was published in 1953 the year i was born mm-hmm. and so it was still a fairly new book and and gave me that book and that that was the first adult book that i read was the expedition of the Contiki expedition. And I think she had a had a very good instinct that this maybe this would interest me. And she was right. That's for sort of the rest of my life until I got sidetracked the computers was all, all working on building boats and the history of boats and, and very much my life I modeled my life on on Contiki. I that was the greatest thing anybody had done.
0: Yeah that's that's funny because I remember I was probably grade one or grade two or something, that was also one of my, the first books that I got as a present for my uh, birthday, I think from my aunt, uh, and if yeah. I remember it was about Turgi Erdal's uh, craft, yes. right? He,
1: he builds a balsa wood raft in South America and, and sails it to uh, the South Pacific, you know, against of course any d- advice, and and uh, seemed pretty crazy, and they, they barely survived, but they did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a vague recollection, but I remember enjoying it immensely and opening up sort of a window of the world uh, uh, in front of me because I was growing up, of course, uh, at the time it was a communist area behind the Iron Curtain, so that was like really far a far away world for me then. Um, Okay, let's uh, move on to your books. And um, I'd like to start with the first book that I read by you, which is called uh, Darwin Among the Machines, The Evolution of Global Intelligence. So, first of all, uh, I don't know if that's the best way to approach it, but I'd like to ask you, what's the connection between your title and Samuel Butler's title?
1: Well, I took the title of Samuel Butler. Samuel Butler, who is the really... The main hero of the book, the book is really a, a, a tribute to him. He, he, he again, the problem is if you, if you do, people tend to be remembered for one thing. So Samuel Butler is remembered for his fiction and largely forgotten for his nonfiction. But he was, he was in many ways still uh, Darwin's sort of most insightful critic. And the interesting thing is that now many of the criticisms of Darwinism that were raised by Samuel Butler are are valid scientific subjects today. That there really is more going on with evolution than than the sort of straight natural selection. That, that what, in fact, it's not even Darwinism; it's what we call neo-Darwinism. Darwin himself would not would not now necessarily be classified as a Darwinist. We, we sort of But Samuel Butler in 1863, uh, 1859, he goes to New Zealand right just after, just before Origin of Species is published. And so at that time, it took six months to to get to New Zealand by sailing ship. So he gets there, builds a cabin, and becomes a sheep herder, and the next boat, the next ship brings a copy of Origin of Species, which he reads in the back sort of wilderness of New Zealand, and, and has all these insights into how Darwin's theories will apply to technology, and, and wrote about it in a, in a way that's just still utterly fresh. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, what, is, what is this book about, in, in your own words?
1: Well, I would reverse the subtitle. Authors don't get to choose a the subtitle, so the, the publisher called it the uh, "Evolution of Global Intelligence." But I think a better subtitle would be the "The Global Intelligence of Evolution," because really, about half the book is about how evolution itself is an intelligent process, and that's that's what Samuel Butler was arguing. And it's not a, it's not the uh, intelligent design we have today of a, of a top-down intelligence, it's a bottom-up intelligence. And that's a very different thing and I think a very profound insight that, that still is, uh, is, is underappreciated. Mm-hmm.
0: I'd like to read just uh, a couple of sentences from the preface which uh, may help some of our viewers here who haven't read the book to get the idea this is a book about the nature of machines it is framed as history but makes no claim to have separated the fables from the facts and then a little bit later it says in the game of life and evolution there are three players at the table human beings nature and machines I am firmly on the side of nature but nature I suspect is on the side of machines and then uh, you end up the the preface um, by saying We are brothers and sisters of our machines. Minds and tools have been sharpened against each other ever since a scavenger stone fractured cleanly and the first cutting edge was held in a hunter's hand. The past is where we find answers to our questions. Who are we and why? The future is where we see questions to which the answers are up to us. So the questions that you pose is, do we remain one species or diverge into many? Do we remain of many minds or merge into one?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So that, of course, that book came out in 1997. So it's it's you know sort of internet years. It's yeah, it's in a way, ancient. it was
0: really early. It's I I don't think it's ancient ancient. I think it's kind of very much forward looking. It in in a way anticipates many of the questions and sort of the direction that things took over after that. So I, I really really enjoyed, it. and I think it's very much worth reading and rereading. Uh, actually. I had the occasion to sort of glance through it again and look at and sort of where I sort of underlined certain passages right. and reread those and that was still very very useful for me but let me turn the tables and ask you those questions that you posed yourself so do we, do you think in your opinion we are going to remain one species or diverge too many
1: well the answer there's two answers one is short term or long term. On on the long term, uh, I think we we clearly are going to diverge into many species. But the the problem is before we get there, I think the whole notion of species is changing. That's one of the one of the things that happened almost faster than I than I anticipated in nineteen ninety seven. The the you know the advances we've made in Sequencing and transmitting nucleotide sequences—the the whole sort of idea of what is a species uh, becomes something quite different, and and uh, and the idea that, which turns out was was much more a part of our history as uh, living organisms that that. Uh, for a lot of the history of living organisms, we didn't have species the same way we have today. We had we had much more, and it turns out we still do, sort of lateral gene transfer where the notion of species is that you you only get genetic information from your ancestors, not from your neighbors. And uh-huh. That that turns out to be to be not entirely true. Uh-huh.
0: And, and and uh what about the, the
1: yeah, go about, ahead. The You're about the mind, you you ask about the mind. Yes, well, What about
0: yeah. about the mind? Are we to to merge into the Borg?
1: I mean, there I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, it's it's again, in uh, at the time I wrote that book, the you know the main uh, the most successful search engine was Alta Vista. Can anybody remember Alta Vista? I mean, you know, Google was sort of a, a speck on the horizon, and and. Uh, and that's what it is. I mean, it is the global, the global mind, and and uh, and we're adding to it. You know, it, 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 in a way that that Samuel Butler imagined, but not not a lot of, you know, it's it's going to advance. Is I'm sure that'll be your next question: what what happens? But uh, but the the global mind that that people like H.G. Wells wrote about or something is it, it's here. I mean, it's. It's, it's not a question of when. It's a question of what we do with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's exactly where I'm, the direction that I'm leading towards. And in order to do that, I want to read a, a, a short passage from, actually from Samuel Butler, who says, day by day, however, the machines are gaining ground on us. Day by day, we're becoming more subservient to them. More men are daily bound down as slaves to tend them more men are daily devoting the energies of their whole lives to the development of mechanical life. The upshot is simply a question of time, but that the time will come when the machines will hold the real supremacy over the world and its inhabitants is what no person of a truly philosophic mind can for a moment question.
1: Yes, he was right, except that it turns out from the machine's point of view, it's better to do it with uh, rewards than slavery. I mean, just... You know, pay the people who write software really well and pay the people who you know who design iPads well and it's 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 all it all moves forward very quickly.
0: But isn't the bottom line the same thing in the end? If they become the masters of this world, as he puts it.
1: Yeah, I mean and I think again if if you took Samuel Butler for a walk today, he'd he'd just see all these all these people being told what to do by their iPhones they're looking at their iPhone and the the iPhone says turn right at the next intersection and they turn right and, you know go to this meeting do this it's, it's uh, Samuel Butler's world is is very much here
0: and so then um if you accept his diagnosis do you then what do you think about his treatment i mean later on he says uh that the machines were ultimately destined to supplant the race of men and to become instinct with the vi- vitality as a different f- from and superior to that of animals as animals to vegetable life so they made a clean sweep of all machinery that had not been in use for more than 271 years that's what he says in erihon
1: Yeah, yeah that, well, that was his you know being a writer he you really can only put this stuff into novels, because otherwise people get get bored with it. But so so he wrote an anonymous novel where he sort of tongue in cheek, you know, took the position of okay, well the only the only answer to this problem is to yeah, not use any machines. That uh, you'll see that in in like Neal Stephenson's next to last novel, Anathem, where where the, the human world has divided into sort of people who, who who use very few machines and sort of have, have, have and and it's what I like about Neil's novel. It doesn't say it's right or wrong. It's just you you can make a choice. In which world do you want to live in?
0: And what about you? Um, is that the way to do it? Should we should we become Luddites?
1: No, I think the Luddites are misrepresented. I mean, I mean
0: we. But wasn't Samuel Butler, in a way, sort of the intellectual sort of giant of Luddites? For the 19th century, at least,
1: not really. I mean, he became. You know, people loved his novel, but nobody, uh, you know, nobody gave up their typewriters. I, th- I think. I mean, he didn't. Uh, he, he just was saying, painting a picture of, of how things were and where they were going at a time when you know it was still mainly steam engines. I mean, he was he was writing in, the, you know, by then, the sort of late 1800s.
0: Because yeah, I, I don't want to blame uh, Mr. Butler for Ted Kaczynski, but uh, y- you could make an argument that you know, while Samuel Butler sort of wrote about it and sort of philosophized about it, then Ted Kaczynski actually took that kind of a- ideology or philosophy or, or outlook and then converted it into sort of justification for radical action.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think I even came up on the suspect list because when they were when they were trying to find Ted Kaczynski, they they were combing through his manifesto, looking at all his sources, and then they were going to. It was, it was, it was an early case of of university libraries being subpoenaed to supply circulation records. They were mm-hmm. trying trying to see who, who was taking out those uh, those books, and I'm sure my name came up.
0: And and so so w- what is to be done then? I mean, uh, uh, one one person like Unabomber says that we have to resist. We have to, uh, and just like Samuel Butler, basically we have to destroy all machines at, and keep all development at sort of a pre-industrial revolution level. Or just as other people like transhumanists and so on, or. As, uh, say that we have to embrace it and go all in, sort of double, yeah. double or nothing kind of. Yeah,
1: no, it's not. It's not one or the other. I mean, the, the real path is in between somewhere. You can't. We can't. I mean, it's too late to to uh, give up technology. It, I mean, I, I think it clearly has a life of its own and it's it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's much more an individual decision. What what. What do you in your life do with the technology that, that you have? Do you do good things or bad things? And that I think, I mean, you, you, case in point, if you, if you studied drones, I mean, there's a, there's a technology that has fantastic, creative, good applications and it has very frightening applications. But yeah. it's, it's up to the people who, uh, you know, make the decisions to decide. Mm
0: hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, let me just ask you the last question here on on this book before we move to the most recent one, and that is, can you tell us a little bit more about the connection between artificial intelligence and the internet that you talked about in your book in 1997? And how do you view that, what you said then, from the point of view of today?
1: Yes. well. You know, Alan Turing, who's one of the other heroes of this story, he never, he, he, he didn't call it artificial intelligence, he called it mechanical intelligence, and that also was Samuel Butler's phrase, and I think that's a better way to look at it. It's not necessarily art, it's artificial, uh, but it's mechanical, mm-hmm. and the... Internet. We, we, in a lot of ways, we don't even really know what the internet is. There's, there's so many different definitions of what the internet is. Is it just the protocols for connecting these computers? Is it the computers themselves? But uh, it clearly, there's a, a intelligence in the internet, and uh, where you know where it goes is still is still the open question. It was when I wrote. Uh, Darwin among the machines, but at that time, of course, it was, it was fascinating to see this thing growing so quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to your most uh, recent book then, which is called uh, Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe. Now, I have to admit that I was planning to read the book, but I actually was out with a concussion for about eight days. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I, I kind of failed on that, but I tried to do my best to prepare on it. Um, let me ask you this. What do you say to people who haven't read the book? What is this book all about?
1: Well, the one sentence description is it, it's the creation myth for the digital universe that all cultures have their particular creation myth. Where did the, the, the first life with first people come from and in the digital world we don't really have a very coherent creation myth so this is my uh, telling my version of this creation myth which and I think myth is important because we never it's my best attempt to understand and tell the story of what really happened but from one perspective it's not the the you know the digital world uh, sort of had many beginnings in many different places and i follow one thread that i that i think that a good case can be made that it's the that uh, that wasn't necessarily better but it was a thread that became replicated and
0: uh let me grab your point, your, your thought here and see if I can dig a little deeper because writing a history is, is kind of a very descriptive kind of exercise but creating or writing a myth has a lot more of a sort of a prescriptive function or element to it uh, because it's supposed to serve a very peculiar or specific purpose, right? So myth goes a little bit further than chronicle. Um, so why myth? Can you tell us a little more about that? What's the other goal that you want to achieve then?
1: Well, you you can never tell the whole truth and the whole story. There's always, there's, I mean, as a writer, you have to leave a lot out, and you have to focus on on certain characters and and not others. So, in a way, the, the, my view of the history of computing, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the Old Testament, the, the leading prophet was was Leibniz, the you know, very prophetic German mathematician who sort of gave us a, a real formal system of binary logic, and then in the New Testament that was realized in machines. And in my telling of the story, the prophet of the New Testament was Johnny von Neumann. Mm-hmm. And in between is this very interesting period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there, clearly, without any doubt, the the person who led the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament was Alan Turing. That's why he gets the title credit in in, in the book.
0: Yeah, so the prophet is Johnny von Neumann. And in a way, he's kind of like the main character of the book. The main, who is like the, the, the change agent, if you will. Uh, and yet the title is uh, paying, uh, you know, homage to Alan Turing. To Al- Can you tell us more about that? Why yes, because it,
1: title- it, Al- it, it, it was Alan Turing's idea. I mean, if you titled it von Neumann's cathedral, you know, you'd be very unfair because what, what he did was was build Alan Turing's concept. And not only build it, other people were building it. Turing machines, but it was von Neumann who had the connections and the the money and the sort of just this genius for organizing things to put it all together and 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 he had the, and he was consulting for IBM, so he sort of inserted it into this mainline path. Uh, the thing to remember of Johnny von Neumann was that he was he was interested in computing, but he was even more interested in the question of self-reproducing machines. When you look at the world today, uh, I mean, computer chips are self-reproducing automata. That's what they are. They they reproduce themselves. That the, you know the the numbers, it's millions per. You know it's uh, when I last checked, it was uh, two billion transistors per second are are being produced. And they're being produced by other machines. There aren't people there making transistors out of. Uh, out of silicon, it's machines making them, and that and that fascinated von Neumann. I think I think that's a big part of the reason why the sort of the origins of this go back to, to him getting to work on it because he, he he very clearly was on that path from the very beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. But let me challenge you on that a little bit. I mean, some would say that ideas belong to those who implement them. And so, for example, if you look at real cathedrals, it's not the people who had the idea to build the cathedral, but it's usually like the queen or the king who actually paid uh, and commissioned the building of the cathedral or, or the, the major architect uh, who usually was dead by the time the cathedral was built or something. So Yes. Is that your no I, I,
1: I agree. And, the, and then the real work is, you know, one, one corner of one tower is built, by six people who worked on that their whole lives, and yeah. and that that really is the metaphor of Turing's cathedral—that it was this, this cathedral built by enormous numbers of people, but it, it, all sort of realizing this concept that, that Alan Turing had. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so, in a way, George, the main character of uh, your book is John von Neumann, isn't it? Hey.
1: Yes, yeah, he's, you know, he's actually the uh, source of, or, or the first use of the word singularity was was a conversation with between Johnny von Neumann and Stan Ulam, where he said that you know, the progress of technology is speeding up to the point where we're approaching some singularity in the in the history of the human race.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic, and I've heard that reference many times before, but I I was never able to track it down myself. Would you mind uh, giving me a little more information about how I can track it down?
1: Yeah, well, I could get, it's in a letter, so it's not in anything that von Neumann wrote. It's in it's in a uh, sort of the eulogy that uh, that Stan Ulam wrote, where he. He mentions that he had this conversation with with Johnny, who was, you know, who's who's always viewed as this person who was just, hundred percent gung ho on any, you know, if you could build bigger bombs, build them; if you could build bigger rockets, build them, just full speed ahead. But yeah, but so Ulam has sort of explained that no, Johnny sometimes had his doubts, and he, he believed that we were approaching this singularity where, where where humans would no longer be able to keep up with the machines.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, since we're already talking about the singularity, I was uh, planning to, to bring that point later on, but perhaps now is the better time. So what, what, in your opinion, then, what is your take on the technological singularity, the way we use it in our modern times, at least since Ferner Vinge sort of coined the term, the technological singularity, which was then picked up by Ray Kurzweil and so on, many others?
1: Yes. Well, I think that the thing for me is that I feel that, that, you know, in general we make a huge mistake that, that in any digital universe, uh, which is an explicit mathematical thing, I mean that there, there is such a thing, you can define a digital universe, and it's, a digital universe is bounded by two singularities okay there's the singularity at at uh, when time reaches infinity right which is and when, and uh, of course you can argue whether we're going to get there or not but there's a more important singularity and that's the singularity at t equals 0 and that's band. the one i work on i mean my well yeah the, the origins okay yeah. so that's why the, my my Turing's cathedral is really uh i mean that that was sort of a ten year investigation of the other singularity, the singularity at the beginning. How did this nucleus first start and that's you need to understand both singularities and the other one at at uh, t equals infinity that's that's also interesting, but it's it's of course sort of religion, not history
0: mm-hmm. so that's very interesting but let's let's go at it chronologically then let's start with t equals zero yeah. and then we go to t equals infinity so Tell us a little more about the origins of our digital universe as you recorded them then.
1: Yes, and and the, what I'm talking about is not the origins of computers, which of course we've had computers for thousands of years and they, there's just been a very gradual uh, step-by-step process of, of, to where we are now. But in the, the digital universe exists in an address matrix, I mean that's why, you know, that's how we're talking on on Skype right now. Is I mean we're exchanging your address matrix on your machine is in communication with the address matrix on my machine, and we're we're exchanging uh, numbers that are are in these address locations, and and all the internet is 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 this huge, you know endlessly growing address space. But where did that begin? It didn't begin, there was a point when there was zero address space and then now we live in a world where it's effectively infinite, which is which is what Alan Turing dreamed of. But somewhere in there, something happened and, and I'm very interested in that. And I think and believe strongly that it happened uh, in von Neumann's project when they built this first Randomly accessible matrix of memory that functioned at the speed of light. And the size of that, which is very interesting, was 32 by 32 by 40 bits. This tiny little universe of memory, all isolated. It wasn't connected to anything else. It was just on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so 40 memory tubes that each stored a matrix of 32 by 32 bits. So, so you look at it like a 32 by 32 chessboard. Mm-hmm. Sort of four chessboards together, stacked forty chessboards high, with uh, black and white pawns on every square, and and you could move those pawns around at the speed of light, and, and everything sort of exploded from that. So that that to me is the fundamental moment when they when they turned that memory on. Uh, nothing would ever be the same after that moment, uh, because the way it worked, you it took ten bits to define one space on one of the chessboards, and if you went to that, you know, if you took 10 bits to say go to the space and another 10 bits for an instruction, when you got to that space there were 40 bits, so you put in 20 bits and you got 40 bits back and that's that's the world we live in where you, you get, it's like, you know, you take, uh, you take $2 and you get $4 back. <laughs> and that's why so, numbers are just just are. Have have, effectively taken over the world because they became self-reproducing at that at that instant. Mm-hmm.
0: Let me ask you this then: um, Is the atomic bomb, in a way, the beginning of our digital universe?
1: Well, they were. It's not so much the beginning, but they were very closely related, and that's what a lot of the story is about. Is the very Deep relationships between not so much the atomic bomb but the hydrogen bomb. The, the atomic bomb, of course, was completely built by 1945, and this uh, von Neumann started working on this building this digital universe in 1945. Sort of at the end, it was it was sort of an answer to the, after the atomic bomb, the question was what next? Mm-hmm. And von Neumann said computers, as, as did Alan Turing's group. There were many groups working on them, mm-hmm. uh, but the driving question was could was would it be possible to build a hydrogen bomb or not and that was a question that only could be answered by sort of mathematical modeling of a, of a very new kind with with much more power
0: so to did, do it by hand
1: would have you know would have taken years
0: decades perhaps yeah so if the hydrogen bomb was the beginning in a way or at least closely correlated does that say anything about us or the digital universe that we live in
1: yes I mean it's it's first of all it's it, it's just very interesting that a machine that was built very specifically to model chain reactions actually caused a chain reaction right that's, that's what happened with what you're trying to model in these explosions is is neutrons that Multiply into other neutron You know, the fission just multiplies as a chain reaction, and and then that's what computers themselves did. They just began multiplying in a, in a chain reaction. But the from a more human point of view, yes, the the mo, this modern computer was in a way born out of a, out of essentially a deal with the devil. I mean that, that uh, the military wanted these weapons capable of destroying all life on Earth. And, and in exchange, uh, we got this amazing machine. And von Neumann was very conscious of that, that, that his job was as long and, and made the deal very explicit, that as long as his scientists answered the weapons questions, they, they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, they could keep the computer and, and do what they wanted with it
0: but and what if did. we got it all wrong what if the devil actually wanted computers but not the bomb what
1: if uh, that's my theory that, i th- i think that's exactly that's what i'm afraid of is that the you know we think that we got the better end of the deal that that because we we've never uh used a hydrogen bomb against people i mean this this absolutely devilish instrument a hydrogen bomb which has no military purpose except to kill entire cities full of civilians i mean it's it's a weapon of genocide from the beginning there's no uh, you know military need for hydrogen bombs except to threaten sort of hold the other population hostage uh, and we thought that, that that's what the, the devil wanted but the bombs have never been used. You know, we sort of, wow, we got the better end of the deal. But, but my theory is maybe, uh, you know, the devil is pretty clever, and maybe, maybe the devil's just waiting, and one day we'll come back and say, you know, actually, I had this deal with, made this deal with Neumann and uh, you know, it's time, time for the devil to uh, take the computers, and that that's what we as human beings need to be ever vigilant about that, that the power of computer networks can be used to liberate people or it can be used to oppress people. And, and I think we have to make sure that gets, gets, that power gets used for good things. That's our job.
0: Also, it fits a lot more with the sort of a mythological uh, uh, image of the devil who, who is more of a seductor. And of course, we all know about this kind yes. of a seductiveness of technology, which sort of slowly creeps in on us, and then we sort of fall in love with it until everything changes. So, yeah. Yeah. so yeah, that's a that's a very very interesting question. Um, so, in a way, are we playing God's then or, or are we playing the, are we doing the devil's dirty work? Uh, as and 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 if yes, then. Wouldn't that, again, be reasons for the Luddites to, to sort of uh, rise up and crush the machines?
1: I don't think they can. I mean, I think it's, it's just it's too late for that. And, uh, and that would backfire, you know, that would be more of a disaster. No, it's just, it's just as I said earlier, we have to make these moral choices. What's, what are okay uses of the technology and what... And, and what or not, and, and that's that's the hard part, and that's really, I think, what all these myths, you know, every culture has its stories and fables that always warn you that you know, that when you ever you see something that looks really wonderful and gives you power, there's always a catch. Mm-hmm. that's very true
0: so if i am to sort of uh change a little bit your statement about the devil may have wanted computers what if the devil may have wanted artificial intelligence what about that taking it a step further
1: that's i think again entirely possible that's (laughs) and back to the the question of whether we are Acting as gods or not, I think clearly not. But, and, and again, Alan Turing sort of answered that best. He, he saw that question at the very beginning when he first started writing about artificial intelligence. He made the statement that in when we create, he was afraid of the critics saying, well, only God can create intelligence. So, what, are you, why, why are you trying to do it? And he said, no, when we create intelligent machines, we are no more. Uh, Creating souls than we are in the procreation of children. We are merely creating the mansions for the souls that only He can create. Mm-hmm. That's really where the title of the of the book came from. That, that when I and when I visited Google, I had this blinding realization in, in two thousand five. This this is not Turing's mansion. This is Turing's cathedral. That's where the f- phrase came from.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's very appropriate. I I also was fortunate enough last uh, summer. Uh, as part of my uh, 10 weeks at Singularity University to go and visit uh, yeah. Google. And uh, it, it was really amazing. We actually went like four or five times. It was, it, and it was equally mind-blowing yeah, every absolutely. time I go there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this about the difference between von Neumann and Turing. Because on the one hand, it seems that Alan Turing talks a lot about AI very early on. From very early age, yes. a decade or so before the war, and so on. Uh, whereas von Neumann, as far as I know, never actually really talks about AI. He talks about computers and so on, but not about AI. Why no, do you he think never the spoke
1: about it. Uh, von Neumann was very formal and never never published anything until it was perfectly complete and, and died suddenly and unexpectedly or, or, you know, without time to finish. So I think, I think he, personally, I think he was sort of leaving the question of artificial intelligence for later that it was, he wasn't ready to uh, tackle it yet. He had no, uh, he, he didn't, but I mean, sort of didn't work in a subject unless he could develop a new theory of the entire subject. I don't, I don't think he had one yet. But he was, he was intending to work to collaborate with Stan Ulam on a, on a book that, if you look at the outline, it really, in many ways, it was a theory of uh, a theory of self-reproducing machines and also a theory of of intelligence. But he he just never got to finish it. So it's and not as if very, he was
0: short-sighted and never saw the writing on the wall,
1: in a way. No, I think he was just very cautious, and mm-hmm. he did—he didn't want to make any claims that were not supported by, you know, by the true reality. So, so people—I mean, you know—when he built his machine, people called it an electronic brain, and he, uh, you know, he never used that label himself. He was interested uh, very much in the. Question of how brains worked, but it was very clear that they work in an entirely different way from computers. It's absolutely different kind of uh, intelligence.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this then if Turing or von Neumann didn't so tragically pass away at very early a- age, like Turing was 40 something and. 41? Yeah. 41, that's shocking and, and then uh, uh, von Neumann was only a decade like 53 or 54 or? Fif-
1: 54 yeah 54 yeah. so
0: if they had had the amazing you know opportunity to see our world today do you think they'd be surprised or not
1: they would be very surprised by t- two things first of all they would be surprised at you know how Many computers there were, and how cheap they are, and how powerful they are. I mean, this laptop I'm talking to you on is has 200 billion times the power of von Neumann's machine, Mm -hmm. and and most of the time it just sits here doing nothing. I mean, nobody's using it. Whereas, whereas people came from all over the world to to use that original five kilobytes.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So that would astonish them. But what would really astonish them, I think, would just in a a certain way horrify von Neumann. I mean, that that this machine is operating exactly the same way his machine operated. It's absolutely not different, except it is faster and more reliable and cheaper. But the rest of it just got frozen in time. I mean, when, when von Neumann's engineers built that machine, they... They were trying to solve a desperately immediate problem and built the machine. They it sort of like the, you know, the saying that generals go to war with the army that they have, not the army that they want. So, yeah. so they built the machine that that they could build, not the machine they wanted. And they wanted something really quite different, and they, they would just be astonished that we didn't we didn't change anything. I mean, they they all believed in you know, in two years or five or six years you know we would develop completely different architectures for computing that would be better yet somehow we're we're stuck in this uh, you know just the the pattern worked and we haven't changed it mhm
0: but but that in a way only shows how amazingly revolutionary and successful they were in in their sort of short term project because uh, it has had major yeah, implications it,
1: it, yeah and it shows how you know, sort of unexpected it was that we would get this reliable silicon, you know, that we would be able to build these machines monolithically on, on silicon with no moving parts and, and just keep making them faster and more reliable. Mm-hmm. That was completely unexpected.
0: Now, you talk about uh, another difference between Turing and von Neumann, and you say that Turing sort of brought computation into the 1D uh, and then von Neumann took it to 2D, and the future, of course, is 3D. Would you like to elaborate a little more on that?
1: Yes, that's a a very rough generalization, but Apologies. but what Alan Turing gave us is, is this one-dimensional model of computation that where the memory is on a linear tape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he knew that that will not be practical but as a mathematician it was a wonderful way of describing it that that all the memory you ever need is on this tape that it's not an infinite tape but if you ever get near the end and need more tape there's more tape mm-hmm. and uh, there's a difference it's finite but unbounded is what you would say in a technical sense yet that was very slow you had to go through you know if you needed a number that was out 10 miles out on the tape, you had to go through nine miles of tape to get there. And then you had to go back. <laughs> uh, and and what von Neumann did was implement this two-dimensional matrix like as I described earlier, like the chessboard, where you don't have to go through the tape, you just have to say, I want I want to know what number is that that coordinates you know A eight. Mm-hmm you know, the the corner board uh, piece on the chessboard. And that becomes way, way faster and more practical. And that's still the world we live in today. If we, you know, your computer has an IP address and my computer has an IP address, those are still two-dimensional numbers. They're they're just giving a coordinate in this amazingly complex, huge chessboard that we're all on with, with these numbers. And the interesting thing is why have we not... Developed fully three-dimensional computation, mm-hmm. and in, in a way, the internet sort of allows us to, to you know, to start looking at that, and and to, we're sort of waiting for the for the Turing and von Neumann to come along and, and take us into that fully three-dimensional world, because we still are only really computing doing our computing on this flat. It's as if we were still just doing drawings on paper, but we're not we're not yet doing sculpture. <laughs> we could
0: yeah so, so is that the sense that you mean that they'd be surprised in
1: yes that we're still stuck in this very yes. very uh, flat, flat linear model where the, the computer again this, this machine that's 200 billion times powerful it still only does one thing at one time that the at every instant the other you know four billion cells in this machine are doing nothing, while one cell does one thing, and then, uh, and uh, that's a a very wasteful, but so the the interesting question is, you know, what would nature do with that? Nature doesn't waste anything, Mm -hmm. and uh, and I I think that's, that's the world that we're...
0: I'm thinking the same thing, I'm thinking that the human brain has sort of a massive parallel processing power. Uh, whereas microprocessor, as you pointed out, are sort of very, very linear, two-dimensional. Uh, so do you think in that sense that the future of artificial intelligence will be sort of making that gap or, or bridging the difference between those two?
1: Yes, and and real AI may develop in ways that, that on, on levels that we don't understand at all. I mean, just mm-hmm. in a very simple sense that, that What, and you know that if you look at the successful companies, the big computing operations like Google or Amazon now. I mean, what they're what they're doing is using those wasted cycles. That's what cloud computing is all about. Instead of instead of your computer being, you know, having buying a bunch of computers and and using one percent of them, you just you know use the cycles you really need out of, out of, out of a less geographically confined, uh, you don't know where the machine is, but it does, it's doing something all the time. And that's, you know, like when we, our brains, when we, when we go to sleep, the brain doesn't stop, it dreams, it does something else, it keeps processing. And, uh, so we don't actually know what most of, once we start building these big, you know, cloud organized server farms and stuff we we don't really know what they're doing all the time Mm
0: -hmm. So is that, going back to your original book, is that sort of the moment when the internet may kind of end up being the emergent artificial intelligence perhaps
1: Yeah, we don't know, I mean I think I think it clearly is but it's not it's just such a non-human what's interesting is in the way for instance Mm -hmm. what google is doing is to sort of read the minds of all the all the humans i mean there's a, the, the sort of you know science fiction view where or the ray kurzweil view where where you have a computer that reads your mind and you your mind becomes immortalized and why why would a why would a machine be interested in one human mind i mean i don't you know, it's it's going to want all the human minds. Why just why just absorb one? So in a way, what Google does is it absorbs the meaning from you know from all the human beings in the world who use Google. Give add a little bit to the intelligence of the system by by. Is what the way the search engine works is to it's easy to collect the answers, but it's hard to define the questions. So so just. Mm-hmm. And you went to Google. You saw they just they just they collected all the digital information in the world, which is not that hard to do. But nobody has any idea where the meaning is except the people. And then, and then every time we search, that that defines a little step by step where the meaning really is, and all that and all that data. It's quite quite an extraordinary way. It's, it's a, if, if Alan Turing was to imagine, you know, when he talked about building. His truly intelligent machine—that's the kind of thing he imagined. A machine that would learn from, would start to learn on its own from people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, George, time is advancing here, and um, uh, yes. I, I would like to bring our interview to a close within the next uh, five or ten minutes or so. I have about three or four questions left. Uh, before that, I just want to remind our viewers again that, uh, guys, please uh, help us support this show. Uh, you can do that by uh, writing a brief review on iTunes, or simply going and making a donations on our donations page on SingularityWeblog.com. Uh, moving on with our last uh, questions here. So, George, we just covered sort of the T zero uh, of the singularity. What about the T infinity? What's your yeah. take on the technological singularity in the modern meaning of the of the concept?
1: Okay, well, again, I'll, I'll be just very technically explicit that, and this goes back to Julian Bigelow, who built von Neumann's machine, and, and he said in a very simple prophetic statement that I think is not understood by most people, he said, no time is there. It's four words, no time is there, and that's the key thing that, that in our universe we have, we have the time that we are familiar with where, where things take a certain, you know, things go faster at higher temperature, they go slower at cold temperature, but we live in a, in a very small range of time scale. Mm-hmm. In the computational universe, we made a huge mistake by, we believe that our computers have clocks because we, we give them a clock speed, but those are not clocks in our sense, those are clocks in the sense of regulating uh, sequence. So in the world of computation, there is no time, there is only sequence. One instruction is executed, the next instruction is executed, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have a time scale. So the time scales are completely mismatched. If you were in the, f- from our world, you know, here's uh, I have a machine that's a billion times faster than what von Neumann had, and it's speeding up. Mm-hmm. If you were living in the digital universe, it would look like the real universe is just slowing down, the way the universe, our universe, started to cool right after the Big Bang, and that's the, I think the source of this disconnect that we perceive as a singularity, that the, what's going on in the computational universe is is proceeding exponentially faster, from our point of view. Mm-hmm. But in in the digital universe, it would not look that way at all. It's just Unfolding by sequence, not by time. There is no time there, and and that's a, what. What that means to us is a very, you know, is an open question. How how are we going to deal with that? A world that, more and more, we are, entwined with a universe that that has no time scale, in the same way we do.
0: Yeah, I think, and that's kind of perhaps the sense in which Marvin Minsky, I think it was, who said that if you are riding the wave of exponential growth of technology, there is no singularity because you're surfing on it. And from that point of view, there yeah. is no singularity. But I mean, for for the rest of us who would not be uh, such sort of surfers, um, what do you think uh, or, or, or how do you... What about sort of the, the implications and the possibilities and the criticisms that you know Ray Kurzweil has to deal with? You already touched upon the religion point of view. I mean, uh, I interviewed Jaron Lanier, who said that you know the singularity is basically a religion for geeks. It's yeah, it's the rupture of the nerds.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that very strongly. That the, the this global intelligence, if it if it reads human minds, I mean, it's it, it, it's not going to preserve them it's going to uh, you know, eat them like a box of chocolates or something, oh that was a tasty one and, you know, it's like we, don't, we don't preserve our food we, we digest it you know, it's, it's sort of, I think very naive to think we're, that human intelligence is going to be preserved in any way, it's, it's going to be replaced with something very different
0: the, the question though is so, so would we be able to survive it to, to survive such an event, even if not in our current form, uh, perhaps in a form of like a merger between man and machine, but...
1: Yeah, or we may become the, you know, sort of the, the white blood cells that that have our function. You know. I mean, it's, it's the history of life. is, to, is to, It's sort of the way it's been going, I mean, is to develop collective organisms. And so, so the advent of metazoan, forms of life wasn't the end of one celled forms of life it just was something quite quite different where we are made up of trillions of individual cells mm-hmm. and that's that's probably what's going to happen but the more interesting question is that people think the digital universe is sort of a metaphor I, I don't I think it's real I think that that in the jury sort of out but I think in a hundred years or a thousand years it may become clear that that actually this actually was a different a a this is what we perceive of that, like the singularity. Actually, was the creation of a different alien universe within our midst, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a very interesting math. I mean, von Neumann and Stan Ulland, those Alan Turing, those people would have, would have found that absolutely fascinating from a sort of mathematical point of view. What is going on in that universe, and can we even observe it?
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um, so. George, for those who are uh, interested in finding out more about y- y- what you do and your work in general, what's the best place for them to do so?
1: <laughs> well, obviously Google. Maybe that's the the biggest. Sort of you know, H. G. Wells wrote a book called World Brain, imagining sort of a world encyclopedia where where everything, all human knowledge, was accessible everywhere, and and, and here it is. Yeah, if you're interested in something. Look it up on Google and you'll find good information. You'll find bad. And what we need to do as educators is teach children to know the difference. But there it is. It's it's mostly there and it's in there in libraries.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's in a way what I did in order to find you and ask you for this interview. But I have to admit that it was not as easy to locate your email and get in touch with you. I had to, to push a bit harder in that. Uh, yeah, to that's...
1: Do. That, that I intentionally keep that you're active. keeping
0: a low profile yes yeah, yeah. in that sense okay so uh, George before we part ways um, what would you like What what is it that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today what is the single one thing that you think is the message that you want to send out there
1: okay the one word message would be wilderness and uh it was Thoreau who said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Not wilderness, but wildness. So actually it would be wildness. And and Alan Turing, when he developed the universal Turing machine, was not trying to develop a computer. He was trying to prove a mathematical point. And his point can be translated crudely into the question of whether... By looking at a string of code, is there any systematic way to predict what that code will do? And that was called the Mm Enchidungs problem, and the answer was no. And that's extremely important for our future and what people should remember, that there is no way to completely govern uh, a digital universe. You can never, even any code that even is powerful enough to do arithmetic, you cannot predict what it will do so we that's why the digital universe will always be interesting and why no one will ever be able to control it, it will always be a wilderness not uh, you know not a bureaucracy or a national park and that's that's what i think is important
0: and, and that's perhaps another reason why isaac Asimov's uh, laws of robotics always failed in in the end of the day
1: yes yes it cannot be and and uh So all these sort of heroes, Samuel Butler, Alan Turing, Johnny von Neumann, Stan ulam they they all knew that. Mm -hmm. And and the people who did believe that they could control things, uh, it it never worked. You're right.
0: George Dyson, thank you very much for spending so much time with us today.
1: Thank you. Very interesting conversation. Happy to talk to you. Thank
0: you. We'll be right back. back.